Please uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 34 and 35 this morning. And uh, I know uh, something we're trying to do a little bit different this morning as we're uh, putting up the keynote is that with uh, there's something with the most recent update of Mac OS, uh, their, their keynote changed. So they added a feature called Keynote Live. And it's sort of like, if you ever try to follow the, the keynote up here in, or PowerPoint, uh, you sometimes I go I'll flip through things and kind of quickly and you say, hey, I missed that point. Well, you can now look online and follow along. So it's kind of cool. Uh, it's called Keynote Live. Uh, it's op- the link's somewhere on my Twitter feed, but none of you guys follow me there. So uh, <clears throat> thankfully, I, I, lunk, I link to Facebook, which most of you are on. So, so you can go, I think the, it should be on Facebook too, but you can kind of click the link and then you'll, you'll come up to a Keynote, kind of web, you know, a web browser will open up. And if you want to follow along, uh, you may. You don't have to, of course. You can just look up here, and it's pretty good. Uh, but uh, your eye, maybe some of you sitting in the back say, I can't see up there. Well, then you can, you can follow Keynote Live. Uh, by the way, the password uh, for you this week is the word strength. Okay, the Lord is my strength. Strength. Okay, so if you want to follow along. That's just fun, but I don't think anybody did it for a service either. So Isaiah chapter 34, 35. Again, we welcome all of you who are here. Uh, so many of you here. I hope that... Uh, uh, you will take advantage of our retreat and come out. Uh, I know it's, it's too late probably to register for the whole weekend, but you can still come out, uh, so I heard from uh, Brother Vincent, to come out for the day, and the day up, up at Redwood Christian Park. It's just a wonderful day. It's a beautiful area, just really uh, in the Santa Cruz Mountains. If you've never been there, it's make it a day trip as well. Uh, you know, you may you can't even stay overnight. Well, go just rent a hotel in Santa Cruz and just kind of drive in and out, okay? Uh, that. That'd be cool with me. <laughs> but, but don't tell the, the retreat staff I told you that, okay? <clears throat> We'd just love to have you there because that's how we get to know you. Uh, you get to know us, and it's an opportunity for fellowship. And it's a really, really sweet time of our year. All right, Isaiah 34, 35. We continue our series through this book, this book that describes the great salvation of the Lord that he provides for all mankind. Um, but in the context of Isaiah, it's salvation, the salvation that he's going to give to the nation Israel. And this morning, if you look at the title, it's called Strength for the Feeble and Fearful. Strength for the Feeble and Fearful. I think in, life's, uh, in life, we can sometimes feel uh, feeble and fearful. And this text will give us, uh, offers us encouragement and strength uh, for those times. So before we look to the text directly, let's, if you won't want, I know uh, just prayed, but I want to pray one more time and ask God to lead us. Father, as we open your word, we pray that your word would go forth and that you would uh, cause it to, to, to accomplish that which you purpose to do. Lord, encourage hearts that need encourage, encouraging. Just comfort those who need comforting. Lord, convict those that need convicting. Do your sovereign will uh, in the lives of all who are gathered here this morning. Speak to them from your word. And we know that, Lord, this is, will be accomplished by your spirit so we pray your spirit would go forth and move in, in the hearts of the people gathered here. Take your word, Father, and bring glory to yourself. Bring glory to your Son, in whose, in whom, to whom these two chapters point to. So, Lord, we thank you for this time. We give you praise. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you live long enough, or sometimes in this world, in this fallen world, and there are times when we all will feel very weak and heavy laden. When we're burdened, we feel feeble, we feel frail, we feel 
fearful because we're circumstances of life have brought about a condition that maybe we are just, we realize we just cannot control or out of our hands, that it seems hopeless. And it's usually at those times when, especially if we are God, belong to God, that we cry out to God. Oftentimes in our pride, we will turn to ourselves, for, we turn to our own strength, our own wisdom. We look to the help of man first before we even look to God often. But when we get to those places of desperation, of weakness, of great fear, then we, try out, we cry out to God. And that is not only true for us people today, but it was true for the people of God in Isaiah's day. The people of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, were going through a period of time when there was great weakness and great fear. King Sennacherib, of Assyria, along, had sent, along with his army, had, sent, had basically ravaged and ran through the, all the land of Judah. All the fortified cities, one by one, were conquered, defeated, enslaved, as the Assyrians did. And only Jerusalem was left. Jerusalem was surrounded, besieged, besieged by the Assyrian army, and at least uh, 120 some thousand soldiers were there surrounding them. They only had to look out and they saw the armies. If you know sieges in those days, sieges really had two outcomes generally. Either the army outside would get tired of waiting for the walls, for the people inside to basically give up, that they would leave. They would just go home and say, well, I guess they're not going to come out. They're going to survive too long. We can't wait till we long. We've got other wars to fight. But the more common scenario was that because the city was surrounded by an army, they could not get anything in or out. Their food source was limited. Their water source was limited. More often than not, the people in the city would simply starve or die of thirst. And they would just have to either open their gates and flee and run out, but that would lead to their inevitable death. And that was Jerusalem. And then we'll see that in chapters, Isaiah chapters 36 and 37. They were in a hopeless place, a place where surrounded by their enemies, they had, in fact, not just surrounded by, surrounded by an enemy that they were thought was their friend. King, uh, uh, the king had emptied out the treasury, in fact, and given it all to King Sennacherib, hoping that it would buy Sennacherib's favor. The Sennacherib would spare them. But Sennacherib didn't. Sennacherib came, sent, sent his whole army and said, surrounded the rest and knocked on the door and says, well, we, we want the rest. They had thought Egypt would come to help them, but Egypt was no more. They had been defeated by Assyria. And so, surrounded by the most powerful army of the most powerful nation in that region, knowing that they were, death was at hand, the people of God, along with King Hezekiah, which we will see, turns to the Lord. They cry out to God. And today's passage is, I believe, God's response. It is God's final words uh, before we get to the historical description. Description of a, a, words of encouragement to those, of his, to his people in, in Jerusalem that felt feeble, helpless, and fearful. And he does so through two main ideas, two main Encouragements, two main promises, two promises of two future events. 
And as an outline for us today, simple outline, we're going to see and look, walk through two promises of God to encourage the feeble and fearful people of God. And this was true, and this was directly applied to the nation of Israel in that day. But I believe that these, these, these events, since they are future events, even from our time point, even our standpoint, and that these events that will take place in the future are also, in a very similar way, a source of comfort, a source of strength and encouragement for fearful and feeble people of God today. And I trust that maybe you may be, you may find yourself in the place. And if you, uh, and if you uh, are not in that place, well, then, you know, put this somewhere in your, in your, uh, uh, in kind of like your, your head and pick a little note because that day will come. That day will come. Anyways, let's take a look then at these two promises of these two future events. First of all, God promises a day of vengeance upon the enemies of God. This is great news for Israel. Because they're surrounded by enemies of God, the Assyrians. And although the present threat against Jerusalem was Assyria, these two chapters actually do not really talk about Assyria per se. Rather, these two chapters focus on far future events, far future eschatological events, end time events, known as the Day of the Lord, which we've kind of looked at in various places in Isaiah so far. But God in this chapter, in chapter 34, pronounces it promises a day of vengeance. And it's, this vengeance is announced, in a sense, in verses 1 through 7. It's announced to all the people that it's going to affect. It's announced upon the Gentile world in verses 1 to 4. Let's read verses 1 to 4. God says to the prophet Isaiah, Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear, and the world and all that springs from it. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out and their corpses will give off their stench. And the mountains will be drenched with their blood. And all the host of heaven will wear away, will wear away. And the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. God, through Isaiah, calls attention to the nations of the world, the peoples of the world, all the earth, all the world. And in, in the Old Testament, when we see the word nations, it's talking about not just, uh, in a sense, all the nations of the world, but particularly the Gentile nations of the world, the nations in contrast to the nation of Israel. So this is a promise to the Gentile nations, and that's pretty much every other nation besides Israel. And Isaiah here then is prophesying of a future when all the nations and all the peoples of the world will experience God's indignation and God's wrath. If you look at it, it's pretty descriptive. You just thought singing about the blood of Jesus. You know, if you've ever, if you've never did that as a Christian, the very first time you do it, it's like, whoa, why are they singing about the blood of Jesus like a flood? That's that's kind of weird, right? Well, this passage is. It's pretty descriptive, too. It's full of gore. You like your action movies, then you'll like these descriptions. But it's talking about the slain. It's talking about corpses that have their stench. It's talking about mountains drenched with blood. And we take this literally. This is the description of the day of the Lord when he comes back and he judges the nations of the earth. This is the prophecy of God. It's not we made it up. We might not even like it. But this is what's going to happen. 
It is a time of destruction, slaughter, bloodshed, as well as universal upheaval. That verse, the fourth verse, is not talking about uh, particularly the angels or anything, the host of heaven, but it's describing the, the stellar, the things in the, in the sky, in the, the stars, the, and the various planets, and the, all, the, all the things in the universe. It will, be, it will be basically brought to a major upheaval that is simply described as being rolled up like a scroll. We actually see this repeated. For all these events are, are really predicting the day of the Lord, which, is, which we find in further described in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, verse six, chapter 6, verse 13 and 14, is the sixth seal judgment. And there, a description of this upheaval of the skies is almost taken, almost the, the, the same ideas are taken from Isaiah chapter 34. It's repeated because it's God's word. See, this kind of judgment, this kind of, this terrifying judgment is going to take place upon the Gentile world. This is a judgment that comes because the world in general is a world that is in rebellion against God. God's vengeance is not only upon the Gentile world, but it extends as well to the nation of Edom, the nation of Edom, as we see in verses 5 to 7. And we'll say, well, why Edom? What's the why does that stand out? Well, there's a reason. Verse 5 to 7. For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen will also fall with them and young bulls with strong ones. Thus their land will be soaked with blood, and their dust becomes greasy with fat. Well, it's, pretty, it's pretty descriptive. But why is Edom, of all nations, kind of pointed out here? Uh, it's also a Gentile nation, but why is Edom particularly pointed out? Well, Edom is a unique nation in Israel's history uh, because they are the descendants of Esau. Esau was Jacob's brother. And so though both Jacob and Esau were both sons of Isaac, and therefore that made them grandsons of Abraham, God's promise of blessing to Abraham was fulfilled not through Edom, but through Jacob, a.k.a. Israel. Although Edom was a descendant of Abraham, a child, you could say a child of Abraham, uh, for, uh, down, of the lineage of Abraham, yet still nevertheless, God's choice, God's promise, was blessing was going to come through Jacob and not Esau, the nation, which became the nation of Edom. See, Edom is not God's people, though they are the closest thing to it. They're practically cousins. They are cousins. But Jacob, Israel, the nation of Israel, is God's chosen people. In fact, what makes Edom so, so, in a sense, heinous is that they are not God's people, but often they were the persecutors of God's people. You know, you would think they would think, well, hey, we're all, you know, Abraham's our grandfather. You know, we're all come from common, common uh, forefather. They would have been friends. But oftentimes they actually, uh, they took advantage of Jerusalem. They would attack Jerusalem. They would not help Jerusalem whenever Jerusalem was under attack. And if you've ever read the book of Obadiah, a book of, in the Minor Prophet, I know it's kind of a favorite book for some of you guys out there, Obadiah, because it's a short book. But that whole book in the Old Testament describes God's judgment upon the nation of Edom. 
primarily because of their, how they treat the nation of Israel. In fact, Edom becomes a symbol in the Bible, a representative in the Bible, of basically those who are godless, people who don't recognize God. And we see this in Hebrews 12, 16, and 17 to some extent. Uh, God, the author of Hebrews warns that there be no, that make sure that there's no immoral or godless person like Esau. And Esau basically sold his birthright uh, to, God, uh, to, to brother Jacob. He, though he had uh, the blessing, he gave up his blessing as well. He was tricked out of his blessing. So he gave up his place, uh, his, his position for, for what? For, for some food, essentially. <laughs> so for a bowl of, of stew. And Esau is seen there as a godless person because even though he wanted to regain a blessing, to inherit the blessing, he was rejected by God. Why did he get rejected? Even though he wanted it. You know, it's, kind of, it's like someone who said, I want to be a Christian, but then God said, no, I'm going to reject you. The reason is, you look at verse 17, he was rejected for he found, that is, Esau found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tear for tears. Basically, Esau was the one who wanted salvation, but he wanted salvation. He wanted the blessing of God on his own terms. He wanted God. He wanted God's blessing, but on his own. He, did, he said, I want all the blessings. I want, you know, all that you have that's good, but I don't want to repent. I don't want to submit to you. I don't want to turn from my sin. Esau was that, and that's, that's what godless do. There are even some spiritual godless. Our world is a very spiritual world today. A lot of people you turn on the television, everybody's talking about very spiritual experiences. They're very religious, in fact, as well. But there are many spiritual religious people who don't want anything to do with the God of the Bible because of the God of the Bible calls for faith and repentance. This judgment upon Edom really is a, is a warning to us today. It's a warning to Israel, who is very similar, could also very similar danger, but it's a warning to us to not be like godless Esau, to be so close, to even want the things of God, but yet actually reject God's demands. For, they, for we too, if we are like Esau, will, be, will, be, will face the, God's judgment in the day of vengeance. Edom is a warning to all those who say they have faith but have never repented of their sin. It's a war, Edom is a warning to those who know about Christ but don't actually know Christ. Edom is a warning to those who attend church but those who are, have never been placed into the body of Christ through faith in Christ. These verses are a warning to the rebellious and godless world. You know, sometimes we think, well, sometimes when you read this passage, you say, oh, God's, God's vengeance is going to come upon the Gentile world. We think, well, what about the people who are just, you know, they don't know anything. They're, they're innocent. They're, they're, they're neutral. They, they neither, they're not, they have not, you know, really thought much about it. Well, the fact is no one's truly neutral. All heavens, the heavens declare the glory of God. Our, uh, the fact that we are alive and walking is a testimony. The whole universe is a testimony that God exists. God has placed eternity in our hearts that we would seek him, that we would pursue after him. God has given us many things in our lives, in the world, to cause us to recognize that there is a God and to pursue after him. But no one's really neutral. Even, even the one who says they're agnostic, you say, I don't know, and even sincerely so, has still in your heart not 
bowed the knee to God, your creator. You've not, you refuse to do so, even though God's word says that he has created the heavens and the earth in the very beginning. God's vengeance is coming for all the world, all the world that is in rebellion and all the world that is godless, that does not submit to God. That vengeance is coming, and it's been announced. And it's not only is it announced, but it's promised. We see it promised in verse 8, specifically promised in verse 8. This is all what's going to happen for, verse 8, for the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Here we find that phrase, day of vengeance, the day of vengeance. This day of vengeance is equated with the day of the Lord, that day that is that future day when Jesus Christ will come again, the the King of kings, the Lord, he will come again, and he will come and he will destroy all his enemies, he will judge all his enemies, and then he will bring salvation. It's that day when Christ returns. It's the day of the Lord of a day of vengeance. Now, but when we hear this word vengeance, this day of vengeance, I think in our day, vengeance has, this, has a generally negative connotation, correct? Well, I'm going to get my vengeance, you know. It's sort of like, I'm, you know, I'm, willing, I'm not going to, it is the idea almost that you want to, you, you not want to forgive someone, and so you pursue them vindictively. You want to get revenge for a wrong suffered. But that's not the case with God. God's vengeance is not like he's like, I'm not willing to forgive. I'm, I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to get you because you, you hurt me. Even now, God is patiently withholding judgment, isn't he? He's not wishing any to perish, 2 Peter 3, 9, but is patiently waiting. We even saw in, early in Isaiah that God waits for Israel to show compassion to them. Rather, this idea of God's vengeance, the day of vengeance, is related to his justice. It's God's justice. In fact, in verse 8 here, as well as in verse 4 of chapter 35, you'll see that the phrase day of vengeance is, is parallel with a year of recompense. And so vengeance is equated with the recompense of God. And when you see this word recompense, it means the idea of paying back. That is, God will justly repay mankind for what they have done. For their deeds. This is something that man does and deserves as payment for what they've done. Later on in Isaiah 59, verse 18, we read this According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands he will make recompense. You see, sin against the holy God demands a penalty. There's a penalty for breaking the law of God. Just as there is a penalty if, well, thank God they don't have the meters on Sunday anymore. But when they had meters on Sunday, remember that? You know, if they had meters out on Sunday and, you know, you've been here all day and you go out, you know, MTA drives by, gives you a ticket, there's a penalty because you overstayed the two-hour zone, right? Or, the, or you, you didn't feed your meter. And you have to pay it because that's the penalty for violating the, well, the, that's not the law. It's like the ordinance or something like that. How much more when the pen, for a penalty for when we are when we are in rebellion when we violate one of the laws of God? Just think about it. What's the penalty if, if you were guilt, found guilty of in this country were for insurrection? You know, you were actually actively undermining the country. You know, just think you know wanting to help ISIS. 
What would happen to you? It's like, you know, fine? Uh Uh-uh. They would arrest you. They would probably put you, try to find the, put you in prison for, as a, for a felony. They'd probably research everything about you. Um, well, that is, our government would. There would be a strict penalty for that, a just penalty, because you are actively working against the, the nation. And this is not just true for our nation. It's probably, true for, it's probably true for every nation in this world. If you're guilty, there's a just penalty for rebellion, for insurrection. If you're on a ship, it's, you're, there's a penalty for mutiny. How much more when this rebellion is against the holy God? And since sin is against the holy God, the penalty is equally great. How great is this penalty? Paul puts it in Romans 6.23 this way. For the wages of sin. This is what you deserve. This is what you earn. This is your pay for sin. Death. Death. Death is our payment for our sin. And it's not just physical death that's referred to here. Not physical death alone. Where our body and soul are separated at death. And then... But this is spiritual death, where our, our whole soul is separated from God forever in eternity, in hell, in conscious punishment, in eternal torment. The wages of sin is death. And there is a day when God will pay what has been earned. And we've all been earning it. Every time we sin, every time we rebelled against God, we've earned God's wrath, God's vengeance. The only way out is if we believe and repent and put our faith in Christ. For Christ has paid the penalty completely for our sin. Now, a special encouragement here uh, in this text, particularly at the end of verse 8, for Israel is that phrase at the end, that there's a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Zion is is a fancy word for Jerusalem. It's a poetic word for Jerusalem. It's, and Jerusalem being the city that's the capital of Judah would represent the whole nation of Judah and Israel. You see, God's chosen nation, Zion, the city of Jerusalem, belong to him. And when nations like Assyria or Edom attack God's city, they are, in effect, attacking God. And so, therefore, God, being a jealous God, will mete out judgment to those who would assault his people as well. See, God passionately protects his people And he would guard his people. He will give out judgment for those who would harm his people. And though you can imagine, all of Jerusalem was surrounded by their enemies, surrounded by the Assyrians. They could find comfort then knowing that God would pay back those who sought to harm them. He is not necessarily promising that he would deliver them, though he does. But he promises, according to this chapter, that he will pay back, that they will that the punishment for their crime will be meted out upon them one day. And that's encouraging because we live in a world of sinners, of sin. You may live in a world where you are experiencing great, in, a, in circumstances that are great, of great injustice, a boss that is completely unfair, maybe a school or teacher that is completely cheating wrong. Maybe you're in a place where a spouse is abusive, Whatever situation, circumstance you may find yourself in where you are on the short end of the stick. And you realize that this, in this life, that may not change. Be comforted knowing 
that those who may be opposed to you, who may be uh, seeking your harm, who may be mistreating you, treating you unjustly, unfairly, they will receive the just penalty for their sins because God has a day of vengeance that is set out for those who are in rebellion against him. And that's the, that was this, this comfort. In the very verses of this chapter, God elaborates on the specific vengeance that would pay to Edom. And I won't elaborate too much, but I just, I won't elaborate because it seems pretty elaborate already. I'll just read it for you. 9 to 17. Let's read it. Just kind of, I'll read it. Its streams will be, that's Edom. This is, what happens, this is what will happen to Edom. Its streams will be turned into pitch and its loose earth into brimstone and its land will become burning pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will go up forever. From generation to generation, it will be desolate. None will pass through it forever and ever. But pelican and hedgehog will possess it, and owl and raven will dwell in it. And he will stretch over it the line of desolation and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there whom they may proclaim king. And all its princes will be nothing. Thorns will come up in its fortified towers, nettles and thistles in its fortified cities. It will also be a haunt of jackals and an abode of ostriches. The desert creatures will meet with the wolves. The hairy goat also will cry to its kind. Yes, the night monster will settle there and will find herself a resting place. The tree snake will make its nest and lay eggs there and will hatch and gather them under its protection. Yes, the hawks will be gathered there, everyone with its kind. Seek from the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these will be missing. None will lack its mate, for his mouth has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them, and his hand has divided it to them by line. They shall possess it forever from generation to generation. They will dwell in it. It's just, if you kind of read through this, is like a zoo of animals, right? A zoo of wild animals here. It's like, man, it's just ostriches and jackals and, and whatnot and owls. It's kind of neat. You can, just, I think I'll read it to Kiara for a bedtime story. <laughs> you know, all these animals, she love it. Uh, but we see here that God's judgment upon Edom is going to be so great that the land of Edom will be essentially become uninhabitable. You know, are there any wild animals at your house? No, because you live there. But when there are no people, when a land is uninhabitable, when nobody dwells, then the wild animals come in and they make their abode there. And that's what we see here. All these different wild animals are going to be making their abode in Edom because the land becomes completely uninhabitable man, for man. There won't be nobles. There won't be any kings. There won't be any people there. It will be desolate. And what's more, it will be generation from generation to generation. It will be for a long period of time. According, uh, it'll ta- it'll, this will take place during the whole of the millennium. Here is pictured then the finality of God's judgment. This is not even what might happen. This is what will happen to Edom it is written in God's book, or really God's scroll. Not necessarily that, it's, though it is written here, in a sense, in our Bible, but the idea of the, seek the book of the Lord is like, it's, it's if, this idea of looking to the book that where God in heaven writes down the things that he's going to do, if you will. It's like the book of life. It's, just, it's things that are determined already by God. It's so certain that it's, it's, you can just look there and say, oh, that's what God has said he's going to do, and that's what's going to happen. It's going to happen because his mouth has commanded it. God has commanded it. And therefore, this vengeance, this destruction upon the world, upon Edom, is coming. It's for sure. It's certain. And while we, 
And while the people of God in that day would have found encouragement from this because they could look out their, their, uh, their gates and they would see all the Assyrians and say, well, God's vengeance will come. Even if we die, God's vengeance will come. But I think for us people today, there's also another encouragement. Because this promise is a promise of vengeance. That means it's a promise of God's wrath. It's going to come, right? God's wrath is going to be poured out. And just think of an unbeliever you know. Just think of them right now. God's wrath is going to be poured out upon them. Do you hate them so much that you want to see them experience this? No, right? We don't want to see them. We want our unbelieving, since you know some unbelievers, you probably thought of some loved one. And you want them to make sure that they are spared from this wrath. It should be encouraging. The day of vengeance is also, is also another, it has another application for us to go and to tell others about the coming judgment, but then to lead that into the salvation that is found, the deliverance from it that can be found in Christ. And that's where it leads us into the second part of our, the second encouragement. Not only is there a day of vengeance for the enemies of Israel, but when Christ returns, there will be a day of salvation for the people of God. See, Christ, and we see this in chapter 35, Christ's coming will bring terror, the terror of judgment upon his enemies. But for his people, it will mean their deliverance and salvation. As we look at this chapter, we'll see four things. We see four things that God's salvation brings. It brings many other things, but God's salvation here, we can observe four things that it brings. And the first thing that God's salvation brings, and when, God, when that day of salvation comes, it will bring much joy to the people of God. Read in verse 1 and 2. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah, that's another name of a desert area, will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. In contrast to the terrifying judgment of chapter 34, this chapter instead beams with just tremendous joy, right? You can just see the joy, joy, rejoice, shouting joy. It's just all over this place. Uh, Not just in these two verses, but the, the remaining verses of this chapter. Now, one of the sources that we find here in verse one of joy we find here is that because the coming of the king, the coming of Christ, the day of the Lord will transform the world. The world's going to be transformed, particularly the wilderness and the deserts are going to be transformed. They're going to be glad. The Arabah, these desert regions are going to be blossom like a crocus, like a desert flower. It will blossom profusely. What's more, it's going to be made, it's going to be given the glory of Lebanon. And we know Lebanon. What's the Bible? When the Bible talks about the Lebanon, what's, what's it associated with? Trees, the cedars of Lebanon, for great forests of trees. Can you, and when Christ comes, the world is going to be, and, and when he comes again, this world is going to be transformed. And the deserts and the wilderness, the places where there are nothing, are going to be like the glory of Lebanon. They're going to be, imagine, just go to the nearby desert. Well, I don't know where our closest desert is, but just go there, and it's going to be, well, it's probably like, down south or something like that. Gilroy. Uh, and uh, Sorry, I don't know my desert areas. But it's going to be a forest of trees like Seattle, Washington. It's going to be beautiful. Greenery everywhere. I come from Seattle, for those of you who don't know. It's going to be beautiful, and that's what's going to happen because Christ comes. And there's going to be great joy about that because um, these people who live in the wilderness and desert are going to have all these trees. And trees, along with trees comes much life, much resources. And a tree means water, by the way. Uh, but that's not all. The greatest source of joy 
at the end of verse 2 is that they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. They will see the glory of the Lord. And what does that mean? John puts it this way in John 1.14. This is what it means. And the word became flesh. The word is Jesus, by the way. And dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as he was the only, for, only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In that day, when the, when, in the day of salvation, when the Lord returns, it will be a day that the people of God will see the Messiah themselves. They will see him for who he is. They will see their king. They will see him for his character. Just as the people of God saw Jesus when he walked on earth in the first coming, they will see his grace. They will see his truth. They will see his love. They will see his compassion. They'll see his power and authority. And then we will be filled with joy. There can be much joy. You know, it's, who would you be more excited to see? Your favorite sports player or Jesus? Think about that. Okay, and for the ladies, your favorite movie star or Jesus? Okay, it helped us put that in perspective for us, right? I remember when I was 20-something, I was like, I was wrestling with it. I was like, oh, man, Steve Largent or, you guys don't know Steve Largent. I mean, okay, uh, <laughs> Joe Montana, quote-unquote, the Joe Montana, or, you know, it's like I was wrestling. But I know that, and so it's okay. You're there. It's okay. You just, you know, you've been living the world a little bit too, you know, you live in the world. But I trust you, as you walk with Jesus, so I'm getting to that place now. I'd rather see Jesus than Russell Wilson. <laughs> you can quote me on that. <laughs> Anyways, man, I'd rather see Jesus. And that's going to bring joy. Anyways, God's salvation, that's going to bring joy when he, because it's going to be awesome when he comes back. But God's salvation, when he comes, is going to bring courage and strength. It's going to bring courage and strength. And this is kind of the heart of the, the really the, the key idea of, the, of these two chapters. It's the so what. It's the, it's the application. And Isaiah writes here in verse 3 to 4, Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense, recompense of God will come, but he will save you. He will save you. Isaiah is exhorting his, the people of his day who were exhausted, tired, weak, anxious, filled, full of anxiety because of the enemy army surrounding them. Death was at their door, but he tells them through God, God through him tells them, take courage. You don't have to be afraid because your God will come. And not only is he going to come in and bring vengeance, he's going to bring recompense, but he will save you in that day. He will save his people, Israel. And that's not just physically from harm, because in the, in the actual future day of the Lord, Jerusalem was once, going to, once again is going to be surrounded by enemy army nations in that day. And you'd have to go to Revelation to see that in Revelation 19. But the nations are going to be rise up along with the Antichrist and, and the false prophet. They're going to rise and lead this army against the nation, the, the people of God. But when Christ comes, he will deliver his people, Israel. But this... But more importantly than physical deliverance is going to be the spiritual salvation. When Christ comes again, he is going to save Israel just as he promised to them to do. We've talked about this in various places earlier in Isaiah. God's going to keep his promise to the nation of Israel to save them from their sins. Thirdly, God's salvation is going to bring healing. God's salvation will bring healing. 
verse 5 to 7, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. So in the millennial kingdom, when Christ comes, he's going to establish his kingdom. It's called the millennial kingdom. And in that time, when he reigns, there will be healing of people. People that are blind, people that may have been deaf, people that may have been lame, that have been, that have been mute, will all be healed by God. They will be healed. They will no longer be in disabilities because Christ will be there. Just as you remember when he walked on earth, we read in the Gospels, what did he do? He healed people. He gave sight to the blind. He gave ears to those who were deaf. He helped the lame to walk, the mute to speak. Now, some may look at that and say, well, was that the fulfillment? Maybe that was the fulfillment the first, when it, at his first coming. But when you look at these verses together, 5, 6, and 7, you see that there's not only just a healing of the people that are promised, but there's a healing of the land. And when Jesus walked on the earth, the land was not healed. There, there was, the land did not, was not, did not become full of springs of water, like a pool. That did not place, take place yet. And because of that, the, de- the deserts were, are still desert today. They're not the forests like the forest of Lebanon. We know that this healing that is going to come is, is still in the future when Christ returns. And why is this healing significant? Because basically these things, the, the, the illnesses of our the disabilities and, and the diseases of our, of our world, and though they may not be a result of personal sin, okay, they may not. I'm not saying I don't want you to think that they're directly a result of personal sin. They could be like John 9 for the glory of God, but, but all diseases, all disabilities, all sickness, all illness, ultimately are a result of the fall of man because this world, mankind, we're under a curse and therefore, there are, that's, re, that's, that's reasons why we have disease, why we have disabilities. It's why we have infertility. It's all part of the, the, the curse. We do not, our bodies don't function as they are. It's why we die. The same with the world. That's why there are weeds. That's why there are deserts. This world was once a perfect world. It's because of sin. But when Christ comes again, all sin will be removed. The curse of sin will be removed in the healing, and he will heal the land just as he heals the people. Lastly, we find that God's salvation brings holiness. Brings holiness. And this is really neat. Verse 8 to 10, a highway will be there. Wow, that's really cool, right? Just like 101 or 280. A highway, a roadway, uh, public works, uh, I guess. Uh, and it will be called the highway of holiness. That's kind of neat. Yes. The unclean will not travel on it. But it will be for him who walks that way. And fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there. But the redeemed will walk there. And the ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. With everlasting joy upon their heads, they will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Well, I don't know if it's going to be like, you know, I-101 or 280, not that kind of highway. But there will be a highway, a, a large path, a roadway that leads to Jerusalem. And it's going to be something that we, all peoples can walk on to get to Zion. And kind of just think about, you know, one of the most, the most uh, kind of the neatest, uh, yeah, the neatest, longest 
uh, highways is I-90. You know? And if you come from Washington State or Massachusetts, you come from Seattle, you come from Boston, uh, we had some Bostonians among us, uh, you would know I-90. In fact, we had someone from Bozeman, Montana in first seven, and he knew I-90. Because I-90 travels all the way from Seattle all the way to Boston. Well, probably travel from Boston to Seattle first, but you know what I mean. It's a long highway that reaches across our land. But there's going to be a greater highway, this highway of holiness that will be upon the earth, that will lead to Zion, and it will, it will, lead, it will lead people so they can approach to Jerusalem much. It will be something that something that, will, that the people of God will be able to walk upon to approach to Jerusalem where they can see their king. Now we wonder, why is it called the highway of holiness? Is it because, uh, it's, it's because those who travel on it will be characterized by holiness, that they will be holy people. But don't get me wrong, it's not because you have to become holy in order to walk on it. It's not that you have to, by your own strength, kind of work or, or earn yourself, show yourself worthy in order to walk on this highway. You look at verse 9 and verse 10. Who will walk there? The redeemed will walk there. Who will walk there? The ransomed of the Lord will return through that highway. It's the redeemed and the ransomed that will walk there. It's the people whom God has saved that will walk on it. It's the people whom he has bought and freed from slavery to sin through the death of Christ on the cross. And as a result of their salvation, we will all have access to God. We will see his holiness and learn from him. We will be holy. We will live holy because of our salvation, because we're saved, and because we imitate Christ. And while we are not there yet, we see this principle already at work in our lives as Christians. We're not saved because we're holy. We're saved by grace. But because we're saved, we're enabled by the power of the Spirit in us to be holy just as he is holy. And even now, when we look at Christ, every time we remember Christ, we, as we do so in the Word, as we do so in communion, we do so as, when we read the Bible, it makes us realize how we fall short and how we can strive to be more holy. We work out our salvation one day we'll see him in person. And then you and I, together, brothers and sisters, we will walk on the highway of holiness. We'll be there, you know. We're going to be all, it's going to be awesome. It's not just going to be us, but it's going to be all the people of God walking. And this is how you get to Zion, to Jerusalem. This is how you get to see Jesus, our King. And that will be a fabulous sight. And this is this, is this salvation, this day of salvation, and all these blessings that come out of the salvation are a source of comfort, encouragement to the people of God, to the Israelites in that day, but also to the people of God in our day. And so, for those of us today who may be feeling feeble and fearful in a world that is opposed to God and his people, let the certainty of God's vengeance let the certainty of God's salvation bring comfort and encouragement to you. That's how it is in the New Testament. Whenever there's eschatological truths brought out, it's always meant for the source of comfort, to encourage, to exhort us, to love God, to trust in him more. That's exactly, but that's exactly what the Bible does here in Isaiah 34 and 35. It did so for Jerusalem, and may it do so for you.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the comfort of these two promises of future events, the day of vengeance and the day of salvation. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who does not yet know Jesus Christ, who is maybe uncertain, unsure, they're maybe just seeking even to learn more about you, I pray that you would open their eyes. I pray that you would open their, their ears to hear of this judgment that is coming, that your word, and that they would believe in your word, and that they would escape this judgment through the means that which you have provided, through your son, Jesus Christ, whose death we just proclaimed this morning in communion. Lord, bring them to repentance and faith in him. Bring them to recognize that apart from you, apart from Christ, they are doomed. Oh, Lord, bring them to saving faith, we pray. Have mercy upon them. Have compassion upon them, Lord. Save them, we pray. And then, Lord, for us, for those of us who have already believed upon Jesus Christ, have already repented of our sin, we have the, can, Lord, comfort us with this encouragement of the promise of not only the day of vengeance, but primarily the day of salvation, the day when we will see Jesus face to face with our own eyes, with our physical eyes, we will see him. And Lord, you will have removed our sins completely from us and we'll be able to walk in holiness just as he is holy. Lord, we we long for that day Help us to live in light of that day, that we would not live in, in sin, that we would not be found in more godless like Esau, but that we would make sure of our salvation, that we would make sure that we pursue the knowledge of Christ. Lord, we thank you again for this time in your word. Continue to comfort those who especially need comfort. Lord, in this room, I know there are some some who really at this moment are feeling very weak and feeble. They are going through fear, real, very real fears as a result of living in a sin-cursed world. And I pray, Father, that you would comfort them today with your words. Lord, these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. God bless you.